Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. So to launch the series, it's my privilege to introduce Amy or Ewing. I'll welcome her up in a second. Just want to introduce her to you. Uh, so Amy has been a teacher and a boss to me uh, in the past, so, which means that in this capacity, she has basically taught me almost everything that I know, but not everything that she knows. Uh, she knows way more uh, than I know. And in her spare time, Amy is an international author, speaker, and theologian who addresses the deep questions of our day with meaningful answers found in the Christian faith. Amy holds a doctorate in theology from the University of Oxford, and she's also authored a number of books, including Where is God in All the Suffering and Why Trust the Bible. You're going to want to read those. They're great. So, Amy, welcome. We're delighted to have you. Let's, let's welcome her up with a round of applause. Right, I'll say one more thing. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. That's a wonderful welcome, and it's great to be with you this morning on this glorious day. Um, so I wonder what you think when you hear that phrase, isn't Christianity violent and oppressive? I wonder um, what if we were to do a sort of survey of people living in the streets around here and ask them the key words that spring to mind when they hear the word Christian or church, whether those would be the words that, that come to lots of people's minds. An honest answer to an honest question can be really, really uncomfortable. An honest description can be a, a dangerous thing to seek. The story is told of a woman, a Mississippi grandma, who was participating in a trial in the South, in America, in a small town. And the prosecuting lawyer um, was new to the job. It was his first solo, um, first solo trial, and he called her as his first witness to the stand. And feeling a bit nervous, he said to her, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? He thought, I'm going to just ask a really easy, straightforward question. What could possibly go wrong? But she responded, oh, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, you talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot and you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. So the lawyer was just so embarrassed and didn't know quite how to recover. So he pointed across the courtroom and said, well, do you know him, the defense lawyer? She said, oh, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone. His law practice is one of the worst in the entire state, not to mention he cheated on his wife with three women, and one of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. <laughs> defense lawyer Mr. Bradley nearly died. At this point, the judge says to both lawyers, approach the bench. And in a very quiet voice, he said, if either of you idiots ask her if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. <laughs> An honest description can be really uncomfortable. It can be pretty devastating. And the truth is that for many people in our world, for many people in our city, an honest description for them of their experience of the church, institutional religion, and the hierarchies of priests and all of that 
that it's been experienced as oppressive. And so this is a really important question. Is Christianity oppressive? Now, as we begin to approach a, con a subject like this, it's a huge subject. We might think of religious conflict. We might think of wars fought. We might think of um, a situation like Northern Ireland, this kind of ongoing um, violence and death. We might think of more kind of historic oppression, the oppression of nations as empires invaded other nations and invoked religion or imposed Christianity. We might think of sexual abuse in religious institutions that were saying they were caring for the vulnerable. All the while, people were being oppressed and abused. But today, I want to focus in on one particular quite large area of oppression that has been associated with the church, and that's a particular focus on how women have been treated. Isn't Christianity oppressive for 50% of the population, and actually by extension for all of us, because all of us are somebody's child. All of us have a mother. Isn't it undeniably the case that when we think about Christianity, it's been oppressive to women? It's really important when we ask this kind of question that we're honest, that while a lot of good may have been done, there might have been a lot of justice-focused work done by the church in our world. It's also true to say that Christianity has been expressed oppressively at times in many cases. And we're going to come into a room like this today with different experiences. When we think about the experiences of women in particular, we could point to restrictive ideas of roles or spheres that are open to women with other spheres of life closed to them on the basis of religion. Or we might think about women who have been painted by ecclesiastical figures at times as seducers to be feared. And as a consequence, that might have seeped into culture so that women have been scapegoated and then blamed for the sexual violence perpetrated against them. For some people, this um, is seen to originate in the Bible. It's seen to originate in the Eve story in Genesis. Some academics cite this story as a reason for a general trend in society to scapegoat women for what's gone wrong with the world. There might be other examples we could point to of how the church has perpetrated oppression. Here in the UK, women were denied the vote for years in part um, on the basis of some men arguing that men should have headship over women. Arguments like women and men have separate spheres. Women are already represented by their husbands. It's dangerous to change a system that works. So we live in a context where oppression has been perpetrated by people who call themselves Christians. And I want to begin by being honest about that. That statement is undeniably true. And we could, you know, we could speak about that in all kinds of spheres of oppression. Yet, 
The suffragette Helena Swanick wrote in her autobiography, I Have Been Young, let there be no doubt about it. This movement, the movement for women's votes, was not primarily political. It was social, it was moral, it was psychological, and it was profoundly religious. Scholars engaging with that um, typification of Eve as the scapegoat will point out that this understanding of Eve flies in the face of the essential equality between male and female declared at the beginning of the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, and chapter 1, verse 27, where it speaks of God creating human beings in his image, and then it says male and female, he created them. So undoubtedly, People have experienced oppression at the hands of the church and in particular have experienced sexism. So when we come to a question like this, is Christianity fundamentally oppressive and violent? And violent? I want us to, to, to come at this with honesty that people are going to have experienced religion in this very negative way but also with honesty that some of us are going to bring different personal experiences to this kind of question. Some of us might say, well, the church has a terrible track record in my direct experience. Others of us might have had more positive experience. But is personal experience enough to base an answer on? To settle a question like this, as with other examples of oppression like colonialism, the Crusades, or slavery, we would need to go to the source material, to the Bible itself, and to ask, are the negatives and are the experiences we may well have had, are they warranted by Christ? Are they warranted by the texts that he upheld and the source material about him? So we're going to dive briefly into this and then open up for questions. We're going to dive briefly into this um, area with a particular focus on women, which is what I was asked to do. So what does the Bible say about this? There are numerous images of women in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Eve is described with this really um, funny, strange little word which might make you cringe. She's described next to Adam as his helper. Now, I don't know what image pops into your mind when you hear that word, that Eve was made to be Adam's helper. Um, the visual image I get is of a, a woman um, doing the washing up with, like, bubbles going up to, to, to my arms and then, you know, like a chain, chained to the kitchen sink. Um, it, it's, a, it's an image that sounds subservient, isn't it? But actually, that word... Helper, translating into English helper, is the word in Hebrew, Ezer. And in the Bible, it's a title that God uses of himself. God is humanity's Ezer. Now, that root word in Hebrew means to rescue or to save. So God is humanity's saviour and rescuer when, when he's Ezer. He's the deliverer. He's the mighty one. 
And almost exclusively, this word is always used of God in the Old Testament. But here, when it's used of Eve, it's a title of dignity and strength. It's actually prophetic about what her role is going to be in bringing, um, it, it being the mother of, of the Savior long term. It's Eve who is the first recipient of a redemptive promise given to any human being in the Bible. She's told, a Messiah will come through your seed and your seed will crush the serpent's head. A woman's seed. So everywhere else in ancient literature, when that word seed is used, the idea of kind of progeny, it's always a man's seed. But here we're told it's a woman's seed that will crush evil. Primary teaching text of the Old Testament describing a female role model doesn't conform to our stereotype of a sort of disempowered, downtrodden woman. Proverbs 31 speaks of a woman who lacks nothing of value, a woman who assesses and buys and sells property, a woman who is entrepreneurial, who employs multiple people, who works hard, who provides for her employees and her family, a woman who engages in strategic planning. She plants a vineyard. That means that she has a long-term view and reaps a long-term reward. She's a woman who studies as a scholar, embracing the intellectual life, a woman who provides for the poor, who engages in social justice, a woman who conducts business at the gate. That means she's a, a person who, um, who commands the respect of influential people, a woman who is loved by her family, a woman who has strong arms, no bingo wings on the, um, on the woman of Proverbs 31, a woman who is creative, described as uh, designing and making fashion and home furnishings, a woman who is able to laugh at the future rather than fear it, a woman who exercises and lives in authority and is respected in her life. That's the ideal woman of the Bible. Bit much to live up to, you might think. <laughs> but not the other way around. Not a dominated, downtrodden, crushed, abused, silenced person. Now, of course, it's true to say in the Old Testament that there are stories in which terrible things like rape and violence occur, including against women. But when we read the Old Testament, we need to understand that much of it is narrative and not didactic in style. And it's actually astonishing then that an ancient text records and preserves and, in a sense, values the suffering of people who are downtrodden, including women. And Christians read the text of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, who brings a historic era to a close, to an end, fulfilling the purpose of the Old Testament, the sufferings of women spoken of with, with tenderness. And then we might look at the New Testament. In the New Testament, uh, what's the role of, of, of women? Well, there are significant events involving women. And you think about this in the context of the conservative cultural attitudes into which this text is written. And that context is open to our view in a number of different ways, but one stunning moment is in the Gospel of John. Chapter 4 and verse 27, there's a telling little sentence that sheds light on the 
mindset of the people, including Jesus' disciples. We're told that his disciples returned and were astonished. Now, that word is really strong. It's like, you know, this is earth chattering. The sky is falling. The disciples are astonished to find dot, dot, dot. What were they astonished to find? Jesus standing on his head. Jesus raising someone from the dead. Something really bizarre. No, they were astonished to find him talking to a woman. That was earth shattering that a respected male teacher would do this. That's the context. How does Jesus behave to women? He has female disciples. Some of them are named for us in Luke's gospel in a culture where the idea of women traveling around with a group of men or having the status of a disciple was totally questionable. Jesus has a number of women who do this. And we're told in Luke's gospel that these women financially supported Jesus and the male disciples. They were giving out of their own means. In Matthew's gospel, it mentions a time where Jesus points to his disciples and says, these are my mother and brothers. It is unconscionable that Jesus could have pointed to a group of men and said, there's my mother. Jesus is talking about a group of male and female disciples. We also see Jesus teaching women in the New Testament. Again, in Luke's gospel, there's a telling phrase. It speaks of this woman called Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus Now, that phrase, to sit at the feet of, had a particular meaning in the ancient world. In the Greco-Roman world, Greek philosophers had men who studied. Instead of going to university, you'd go and sort of sit at the feet of a philosopher. It's a bit like, you know, people on their gap year might go to an ashram and sit at the feet of a a guru for a year. And it was the same in in Judaistic culture, where um, there'd be a rabbi, a teacher of the Old Testament, and a young male rabbinical student would sit at their feet or sit at their feet. So it's akin to something like, you know, going up to study at university or whatever. Now, within Judaism, this was a role exclusively reserved for men. And that is true until fairly recent times within, uh, within Orthodox Judaism. A role reserved for men. So here's this story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And there's a woman called Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. A role reserved for men. And her sister, called Martha, objects to what's happening. Now, if any of you grew up in the church, um, you've probably heard that story. Martha wanted help with the housework. You've probably colored in a drawing of it lots of times if you've grown up in the church. You know, we know that story. You know, come and help with the housework. Know what Mary's chosen is better, to be with Jesus. That misunderstands Martha's objection. Martha is not saying, don't be lazy, help me with the washing up. Martha's saying, how dare you take the role of a man? You are usurping a man's role to sit at the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, what Mary has chosen is the better part, and it shall not be taken from her. Jesus is smashing perceptions of what is possible. Women can sit at my feet and learn and study at the rabbi's feet. It's astonishing in the cultural norms of the time. Jesus spoke about women in an affirming way. 
You know, when people are sexist or when people are racist or have some other form of prejudice, they often might be able to hide that in their public discourse. But the way you pick up that prejudice is often in incidental ways. It's in those encounters or the way that people are spoken about or assumptions that are made about them. And Jesus spoke about women in an affirming way. He actually portrays God in feminine form. One of the most famous chapters of the Bible is Luke 15. You might have heard of the story of the prodigal son. That's the end of of Luke 15. At the beginning of Luke 15, there's another parable where there's a, a lost sheep and this shepherd leaves 99 sheep and goes to look for the one. So uh, Luke 15 is structured as these stories that Jesus told and that God is like this heavenly father waiting for that prodigal son to return and running out to him. And God is like this this shepherd who, who goes after that one lost sheep. And in the middle of those two parables is another parable. And it says, there's a woman. She's on her knees in her house in the dirt searching for a lost coin. Jesus is saying, God is the good shepherd going after the one lost sheep. God is the good father longing for the prodigal son to return. And God is a woman searching for a coin on the floor of her house. That's how Jesus taught. That's how he taught about who who God is. Following on from this, we see women played an important and prominent role as historic witnesses to the central events surrounding Jesus Christ. Think about this. A teenage girl called Mary is the primary witness to what Christians would call the doctrine of the incarnation. That's the massive earth-shattering possibility that God entered human history in flesh, that he actually became a person in the person of Jesus. The primary witness to that is a teenager called Mary. She's the witness that this is God with us. The story of the crucifixion that we've just celebrated um, at, at Good Friday and then, of course, Easter Sunday, you know, we have in the gospel accounts, accounts of Jesus' death. And we're told in all of them that Jesus' crucifixion is primarily witnessed by women. It's a group of women who stand at the foot of the cross. The male disciples have deserted Jesus. This means that women, the women were the primary um, witnesses of those details you might have thought about last week. The blood and the water, the spear in the side, the crown of thorns, the things that were said, the details about the clothes, the things that Jesus said from the cross. And then women were first at the tomb. They were the primary witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's striking when you think that the word of women was not regarded as having equal value of that, as that of men in a court of law in the ancient world. So it is enormously important that the most significant events of Jesus' life, identity, death, and resurrection are all primarily recorded by female eyewitnesses. This is so subversive 
You know, you sort of think, how could, how could we not know this? How could we not realize how incredibly upside down this was in the world? Women were not likely to be believed. The writer Dorothy L. Sayers puts it like this. She says, perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this. A prophet and teacher who never nagged them or flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them and never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out a sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered them for being female. Perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. So as we ask ourselves the question, is Christianity oppressive? Has Christianity, you know, been violent and oppressive? And we look at a a specific instance like this, and we turn to the founder And we ask, would this be a legitimate outworking of the life and model and teaching of Jesus Christ? I think we have to conclude that that sexism and oppression would not be a legitimate outworking of the life or teaching of Jesus Christ. Is oppression a logical consequence of this worldview? Jesus was radically countercultural in his positive treatment of women and actually of other oppressed people and groups. And the impact of the early church on the ancient world was that this eventually turned out how the Roman Empire began to view women. In the ancient world, you see women were treated as objects and as possessions. Their voices and opinions didn't matter. Girl babies were often left outside to die because the family wanted a boy. And they sometimes died or were found and then taken in as slaves, often to be sexual slaves. So instead of being the lowest of status and vulnerable to infanticide or sexual slavery as the empire viewed them, Christianity gave women equal humanity with men. Women died for their faith as martyrs alongside men. I have um, three sons, and um, so I live in a, a, a house filled with testosterone. They're all teenagers. I've got twins who are 16 and a 13-year-old. So when we decided to get a dog, I said, it must be female, and they all agreed. <laughs> and the boys at that time had been studying stuff about Christian martyrs, and they decided to name our dog after the first known Christian martyr who died in the amphitheater in the first century for her faith. She's called Perpetua, so our dog is called Perpetua. <laughs> Women died for their faith as public martyrs alongside men, and their deaths were recorded as significant. And it was Paul who wrote in his letter to the Galatians a kind of manifesto for followers of Jesus Christ. There is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And that vision changed the ancient world. On the basis of that vision, Hospitals were built. Education was was offered to the oppressed. 
Patriarchy, oppression, sexism are not a logical outworking of the New Testament. They are not found in the actions or priorities of Jesus Christ. And that is why faithful Christians in every generation have resisted them. If you take an example of oppression like the Crusades, where um, people went and fought in armies in the name of Christ and killed other people. You will find even in those darkest chapters of church history that there were Christians present. One of the most famous saints that you might have heard of called Francis of Assisi, known for talking to animals and talking to trees and stuff. You know that guy, St. Francis of Assisi? Do you know what he actually did during the Crusades? He went to the front line and he preached the gospel to the so-called crusading armies and told them of a God of love and grace and told them to go home. Then he crossed over and he preached the same gospel to the Muslim armies. He even actually did a miracle walking through fire to demonstrate the power of God in the name of Jesus and appealed to, to people on both sides to turn to the same Christ. You could look at examples in the context of of slavery, of resistors of slavery from within who spoke up, not just William Wilberforce, but but enslaved Africans who, who spoke up and who shared the gospel with others and who made a movement of resistance because of the Lord that they served. So yes, there's been oppression Yes, terrible things have been done in the name often of institutional Christianity. But these are not legitimate outworkings of the Christ who is at the centre of our faith. Last thought, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised to be disappointed by the church or to be disappointed by organised Christianity. Since, as the brilliant theologian Elaine Storkey once said, The church recruits from the human race. But I suggest that while you may, and I have been, disappointed by Christians at times and disappointed by the church, I suggest to you today that you will not be disappointed by Christ. The promise of Christ is that coming to know him is the key. And that real transformation of the human heart is possible when it is wrought by him. People and institutional organizations claiming to represent him may fail us, but he does not fail. And he is available to every single one of us, even this morning. And so like those women who were drawn to this man unlike any other man, to his cradle, to his cross, and to his empty tomb, may we too today open our hearts, even though we may have been rightly disgusted, disappointed by what we've experienced of religion, may we be drawn personally to Christ. Thank you for listening.
Amy, thank you so much. That was incredible. Um, some, some great questions have been uh, coming in. And uh, there's no easy way to just to jump than other just to jump in. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, let's jump in. So you've spoken about, you've spoken about the, this view of women as temptresses, um, or like a, this narrative of the Genesis story of women being set up as the reason the world went wrong. Um, and, and essentially have shown us a different way to understand that, which is very helpful. But the question uh, relates to that in talking about the, what's called the Billy Graham rule. Oh, yeah, okay. and, and maybe you can just explain for those who don't know what that is. And if you think... If you think that it adds to the perception of women as temptresses, and maybe the clarifying question is, what, what is the proper relationship between the sexes? How do, we, how do we actually relate to each other well? Thanks, Mike. Well, no small question. Okay, so um, for those who are lucky enough not to know what the Billy Graham rule is, um, the Billy Graham rule was uh, sort of well one of those things that's well-intentioned. So Billy Graham was an amazing American follower of Jesus who just had a gift of communication and most of us in this room are too young to remember but he filled Wembley Stadium every night for months when he came to Britain you know he was an extraordinary draw as a person he went all over the world and filled football stadiums and you know like Times Square and, and preached the gospel and he was, um, he was very aware of the possibility of someone in a position like him, someone in a position of power and like public role, that if he did something that, you know, harmed someone else or basically brought his message into disrepute, that that would be catastrophic. So he put things in place in his life to make sure that he, he didn't slip up or fall or actually, you know, abuse people in the way that often these very prominent religious leaders do end up doing. So there's actually a humility in the approach. However, the Billy Graham rule was that he would never be with a woman who was not his wife or daughter in any situation alone. So he wouldn't go in a car, wouldn't have lunch in a restaurant. Um, he would just never... It would. The, the, the situation would not arise that, that, that he was alone with a woman. And what that actually, and then lots of other leaders sort of adopted that as, as a kind of best, um, best practice. But what that actually meant in the church, in situations that you can imagine from your workplace, if, if powerful decision-making people end up being men and women are never allowed to be in the room, then actually you're not encouraging women into leadership roles or giving women opportunities. So that's why it's been controversial. Um, so while I appreciate the sentiment behind what Billy Graham did, I don't think it's uh, necessarily a, a, a wise or helpful thing for us today. I think we need to build teams that model men and women working together um, that are not weird, you know? <laughs> it's like... I just think, don't worry, we're going to be in a car together and I'm not going to have an affair with you, <laughs> you know? Okay, and so as, as women, we, 
I think we have to contend for those spaces to be open for other women. And as men, we need to be aware of who has gifts and create opportunities and safe spaces for women to flourish. Thank you, Amy. So another, another fairly tough question is um, Christian speech itself seems to have oppressive tendencies in that it asks us to live in a way that may be exclusive. For example, God seems to be called he. Is, is that significant? Um, is there room for Christian language in our modern world? Great. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so just with regard to that, God being called he, I mean, I was asked by a, a teenager a few years ago now in Spain, you know, if, if there's this equality, why did God come as a man in Jesus? You know, does, isn't, doesn't that sort of point at fundamental like maleness, being superior. And um, it, it sort of took me right back to that verse that I mentioned in Genesis where Eve's seed will crush the serpent's head. And actually, it, what's extraordinary about the Christian faith is that at the heart of it is this um, incarnation. God becomes a human being, and yes, Jesus is male. He's, in the incarnation, Jesus is male. So God is born as a male, but God is born of a woman. Jesus does not have a male human father. Jesus has God's father. It's a virgin birth. And so even there, at the heart of the incarnation, you have this unique role for women, Isa, the one through whom deliverer will come. So yes, Jesus comes as a man, but he is born of a woman. So there's this always this kind of almost corrective, you know, beautiful centering of women right at the heart of the Christian faith. And that is actually unlike any other worldview I've ever seen or experienced. So my question to us as a church is, are we living that truth and are we demonstrating it? And then secondly, just on the, the language about God as, as father and God as he, it is interesting to me that Jesus speaks of God as a woman on her knees searching for a coin. Jesus um, quotes Isaiah, you know, Isaiah depicts in one prophecy God as a warrior, you know, returning from battle two verses later. God as a woman struggling to bring a child to birth. Any woman who's given birth to a child in this room knows that's a visceral, powerful image of humanity. So God is not limited to being male. Of course, through the incarnation, Jesus is revealed to us as male, and he primarily does speak of God as father. But he does also invoke these other images, which may be helpful for us. Great. Thank you, Amy. Maybe one, one or two more. Are we up for one or two more? That, yeah, okay, a few nods, great. So if there is this much freedom, as you've been describing, and equality, 
what sense can be made of specific texts that seem to oppose that? People have lots of questions have come in about Paul, yeah. Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians, yeah. specifically 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians 5, the role sure. of husband as head yeah. of the wife. H- how do we make sense of these texts? Okay, great. I did have a section on that, but I had to cut it out because Mike only let me have 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so very, very quickly. <laughs> um, The first thing I want to say about Paul is that he gets a really, really bad rap. Um, I I will speak about those specific verses, but think about this. Paul spoke of a woman called Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, introducing her as the deacon in the male form, diaconon, of the church. And he uses this adjective to describe her. He says she is prostatis over many, including Paul himself. And this word only occurs once in the New Testament, but in other Greek literature, this is how the word is translated. Leader, ruler, protector, or president. One Greek lexicon speaks of this word as the governor, chieftain, president, or someone in charge of a temple. So Paul, this so-called sexist, speaks of this specific woman called Phoebe in the book of Romans, his most kind of doctrinally significant letter affirming her. Paul encounters a woman called Lydia in the book of Acts, where he's actually planting the first European church in a place called Philippi. And Luke records a very significant conversation because Lydia pleads with him and says, as the first believer, you see, in the early church, the first believer was the leader of the church in that place, and the church met in their oikos, in their house. Now, Lydia was unusual because she appears, we don't know who her, if she had a husband, but she's a businesswoman, she's got assets, she's got a house big enough to host the church in. So she says to Paul, can the church meet in my house? Now, that doesn't mean, can everyone come over for sandwiches at my house? You know, that, would, that wouldn't have been a dilemma, would it? Why is it a dilemma? Because can the church meet in my house is saying, can the Philippian church be led and hosted by a woman? And the answer is yes. That's what happens. We have an amazing couple called Rome, uh, Andronicus and Junia, outstanding amongst the apostles in the eyes of Paul. So a woman apostle. Um, we have all sorts of other things we could talk about. So you've got the witness of the New Testament, of the teachings of Jesus. You've got these statements made by Paul, including Galatians, I've already quoted, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And then you have um, these, this sort of cluster of verses which appear to contradict everything I've said. Probably the most significant is 1 Timothy chapter 2, where um, Paul is writing a letter to a guy called Timothy, and the location is the Ephesian church. And it says, or the English translation rather unhelpfully says, I I do not permit women to teach or have authority over men because it was not the man who sinned first, but the woman even. Then it says, people will be saved, but but, but everyone will be saved through childbearing. So really strange, um, strange few verses. What on earth does that mean? Justification is that word saved, and everywhere else, Paul says it's justification by faith. We're saved through faith, and then suddenly we're justification through childbearing. It's very, very odd, right? <laughs> so when, um, when the New Testament was written, of course, if you're a Christian, 
you believe that there's a role of the Holy Spirit called inspiration, that this is actually a level of literature above, you know, just normal writing, that there's inspiration. But it was also written into an original context. So Paul is writing to a specific group of people in a place called Ephesus. And in that place called Ephesus, there was not a Jewish community, certainly not a large one, tiny, tiny Jewish community, and a large Ephesian church. So that means that members of the church, before they were Christians, were something else. What were they? The vast majority of Ephesians were worshippers of Artemis. And you can go to Ephesus today, and you can still see the remains of her gigantic temple above, towering above this very significant port city of Ephesus. So Artemis, a goddess, unusually in the ancient world, was was served and worshipped, and her worship was led exclusively by female priests. And those female priests had all kinds of ideas about men and sexuality. There was a massive cult of um, temple prostitution, but they believed that bearing the child would defile the priestess. So there was this sort of rejection of childbirth, rejection of sexuality as something positive. It was was a, a way of kind of keeping men down And so you come into the church, and um, the people in the church have come out of worship of Artemis. So Paul is writing to Timothy, who's been brought in to lead that church for a short while, and he's saying, I do not permit these women to teach. He says they need to be silent, and they need to learn. Now remember, learning, being educated, is is a crucial value of Jesus for women. Learn theology. This is our legacy. Um, So women need to learn. And what do they need to learn? They need to learn that that Eve did actually sin. So um, lots of scholars believe that a sort of heresy had come in via this kind of Artemis worship, which viewed women as, as sort of primary and strong and to oppress men. And that it had latched on to, sorry, this is a bit theological, but it had latched on to Paul's teaching that all have sinned in Adam. There's a first Adam, and then there's a second Adam called Jesus, and we're all redeemed in him. Now, if you weren't Jewish, you'd never have heard of Eve. So you've become a Christian. All you've heard of is everyone sinned in Adam. All you know is that women are superior and that, that um, this kind of goddess Artemis culture is, is what you've been formed in. And Paul is saying that mustn't infect the church of Jesus Christ. And then he says people who, you know, people will actually be saved through childbearing because we're all saved through the birth of the Son of God through Mary. Right? So that's the clue as to what the sort of specific in that, in that situation is. Elsewhere, Paul affirms a woman called Priscilla who had a teaching ministry. So he clearly believed in women teaching more broadly and generally in the church. Sorry, Fantastic. very long answer. No, that's fine. brilliant. Okay. Everyone more. Yeah, Quick, fine. Okay, we're gonna, this is going to be our final question for today. Um, thank you. You've been fantastic. So... It's more of a personal question for coming from the perspective of someone who may have experienced oppression and hurt in the church. You're talking about finding Christ in the midst of potentially experience of oppression within Christianity. How do I find Christ in the midst of my experience of oppression and hurt? Thank you. That's a, a really poignant question. And, you know, I haven't really talked very personally um, about experiences that I've even been through in the last couple of years um, 
being involved in um, trying to stand up against sexual abuse um, in a religious context, in a Christian context, and to sort of shine light onto that. And a lot of suffering that I've experienced and disappointment in, in the way that Christians have responded to that oppression. So I really thank you for whoever asked this question. Um, so this is going to be a bit of an odd answer, but the first thing I think I would say is consider therapy. Wounds inflicted in a spiritual community context are real wounds. You know, often we're so influenced by the materialistic worldview of our culture, but materialism means that all that exists is matter, this physical stuff of the universe, and there's no God, there's no supernatural dimension. And that means that we often trick ourselves into believing as human beings that the hurts that happen in the physical or material sphere matter more than the wounds that might be inflicted in a spiritual, psychological, or emotional context. And that is not true. That's not the worldview of the Bible. So it, it may be that the kind of um, help that you need, actually, to work through some of that and to recover is more than someone praying for you. Maybe someone praying for you will be enough. But I just want to give permission here. I have needed therapy, right? In the last year, I've had amazing psychological therapy for trauma and PTSD as a result of wounds inflicted in a, in a kind of spiritual context. So that's the first thing I want to say to, to encourage you, if you need that kind of help, to, to seek it and that there is no shame in that and that, you know, actually there's a real place for us as whole human beings in the Bible. And then I guess secondly to, to say how important it is that we create safe communities where people can express doubt and hurt. That's why I think this series is so important. So well done, guys, for doing it. Because often you may find yourself secretly thinking, well, you know, I, I just can't, I'm not allowed to say what, what I think, I don't even know if I'm thinking it, but, but I sort of am thinking it. Um, so, so to create a safe space where we can express our hurts and our doubts, and we're going to be loved, and we're going to be accepted, and we're going to have people come alongside us and say, it's, that is okay, I'm with you. You are safe to, to express what you've just expressed to me, because our God is big enough to handle it. The question is, are we? So let's, let's be a community that, um, that can do that. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.